0: So you're the rowdy crowd, huh? That's awesome. That's good. Um so I expect there'll be a few amen's then maybe as we go through God's word today. That would be just just great. There you go. There's one there's one um already. How cool was that to see uh Ben and his daughter Samantha up here, a father and daughter uh worship team. That was really cool. So that was that was quite a quite a neat thing. And um I got to tell you the um uh Trunk or treat is not just for kids, I had a great time, so, so come, not, leave the candy for the kids, but it's fun to see all the decorated cars uh, and all that stuff, and it's, it's my hope and prayer that uh, we exceed that 400-box goal for the, the shoeboxes, that'd be really cool if we could do that as a church. So, you ready to hear from God's Word? All right, so the message this morning is called Living with Joy, Purity, and Thanksgiving, and we're going to cover... Both chapters 11 and 12 of Nehemiah. and that's a long section, it's almost 90 verses. So we're not going to read all of it, we'll look at parts of it. But one of the cool things we'll see, and I think people saw this in the morning message, at least some of them shared with me they did, is how neat it is sometimes to see the big picture message that God has given us. Because we don't have time to exposit every verse here. Again, we'll look at a few, but there's some big picture messages in here that are amazing. And so God's Word, whether we read it as a chunk or we examine each and every word, uh, speaks to us and is powerful uh, and is true. So what have we learned about this book so far? I mean, it's a pretty amazing book. Um, And what we've seen so far is that on the surface, at least, it appears that it's about the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem after God's people had been released from captivity in Babylon. But while the people have been building the wall, there's something else that's been going on. God has been doing some building of his own, which has been in the hearts of the builders. For you see, it wouldn't do much good to put up the walls around the city to give it protection from its physical enemies if the hearts of the people in that city were still left unprotected from spiritual attacks. And so what we're going to see this morning, as, after we get through some of the important details, is that there's going to be a great outpouring of these three things, the title of the message, from the hearts of the people. Uh, which are essential elements for all of us as children of God, and that is joy, purity, and thanksgiving. Now, all of this takes place in the middle of the 5th century, uh, but it is still highly relevant, highly applicable, and useful for us today because God's Word is timeless, (coughs) eternal truth. And we are to feast on it, just as Jesus said, because we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now while all of this took place a long time ago, it did not take place over a long time, because our God is able to move incredibly fast. Now if you remember back in Nehemiah 6, uh, Nehemiah 6:15 to be exact, we were told that he worked through the people to rebuild this entire wall in just 52 days. And in chapters 8 through 10, which all take place in just one month, we're told it's the seventh month of the year God begins to change the hearts of the people through first the reading of his word in chapter 8, and then he brought them through a time of confession and repentance in chapter 9, and then in chapter 10, he gave them a desire to now obey him. And that is going to usher out in what we have before us this morning. First, in hearts willing to live sacrificially for God in chapter 11, and then secondly, in hearts of joy, purity, and thanksgiving that we have in chapter 12. So that's the big picture. And we'll, we'll unpack that a little more as we go. But if you're here this morning, um, as I come to church every Sunday, uh, and you know that some work needs to be done in your heart, because none of us is perfect, right? Jesus <laughs> we're works in progress. Um, you know, maybe it's an area of personal uh, holiness yourself or purity. Maybe it's an area where you want God to make you more loving or forgiving. I've got good news for you. You don't have to wait. God can do that right here and right now. And yes, there are times, we've all been through them, when it appears that God takes a long time to change a heart, maybe ours, maybe someone else's, but that's not because God is incapable himself of moving fast. Rather, it's because we are often incredibly slow to respond to what God is trying to do in our lives. So if there's any of us here this morning who are open ready and willing for God to do a work in our hearts, he can surely do it. So let's pray uh, and ask him to work in our midst now, and then we'll get into our text. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its timeless truth, Lord. Thank you that we see you and we learn about what you expect from us, Lord, in both the big picture and the small picture when we dig into the words of it. Um, Lord, thank you for how consistent it is. Thank you for Uh, how we see in the New Testament the same things we're going to see in the Old Testament. I pray your Holy Spirit this morning would tie that all together for us, Lord. Uh, Reveal more of yourself to us and show us whereby the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, you want to transform us and give us hearts of joy, purity, and thanksgiving. And we pray these things for your glory and in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So, as we begin chapter 11 it's important to kind of set the stage and remember what an audacious task it actually was for the people to return to Jerusalem because they hadn't been there for 70 years or more. Uh, And the place had been totally destroyed and it was in a shambles. Sure, uh, the temple had been rebuilt a few years before what we're reading in Nehemiah and the wall is now being rebuilt, but much of the city still lay in complete ruins. So to live in this city at that time would have been a very sacrificial, selfless act of boldness, daring, courage, and adventure. Imagine for a minute, if you will, if all of Palos Verdes, all four cities up here, had been totally destroyed, and all that had been rebuilt by the few that came back was this building and perhaps PV Drive on the north, the south, the east, and the west, kind of like the walls around, around the peninsula. Well, if that was the case, for reasons of of safety, comfort, and certainly convenience, it would be much easier to just live down in Torrance or Redondo Beach or San Pedro, wouldn't it? It would be much easier to do that than to come up here. And yet that's what these people are being asked to do as we open chapter 11. So with that understanding, let's read the first two verses of chapter 11. These are two of the verses we will dig into And then we'll move on and look at some big picture things and then dig into more verses at the end of chapter 12. So, Nehemiah 11, verses 1 and 2. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem." So we can see right off the bat from these opening verses that there was not a huge crowd of people clamoring to go back and live in the city. And that only one out of ten of the people did, and those were chosen by Lot, sort of like a a tithing of of one-tenth of all the people. But notice what group out of all these people had a 100% participation in this bold and sacrificial move back into the city. The first few words tell us that it was the leaders of the people who were all in Jerusalem. And this tells us something important about leadership both in and out of the church. It tells us that good leaders lead from the front rather than manage from behind. And that when it comes to God's family, the people are never going to go further themselves in their commitment to God and his ways and his kingdom than the leaders are willing to go themselves. And so you can't have a spiritually mature church without spiritually mature leaders in that church, which is why who you have in leadership in a church is so important. And so for that reason, God's Word sets forth some very exacting requirements, primarily in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, for church leaders. But this principle isn't true only for the church. It's true in our homes. Let me just address the guys here in the room. It's true, guys, if you are a husband, your wife, your children, if you have them, need you to be the spiritual leader of your home, to lead from the front and not manage from behind, and to live, as these leaders did, sacrificially and selflessly for them. Now, notice also in verse 1 that although they cast lots for this one-tenth of the people that also went into the city, Verse 2 tells us that these people nonetheless went willingly. It says they willingly offered. When they heard that call that they were one out of the ten, they willingly offered to go live in Jerusalem. You see what's going on here is if, if leaders in the church, as they were in this community here, would be bold and lead from the front and be willing to take the hits, so to speak, that sometimes need to be taken in order to advance God's kingdom, then the people in the church will willingly do so as well, and that's what we see going on here. All the leaders in the city, and if you were one out of those ten that got picked, you said, okay, I'm going to go, and I'm going to do this willingly. And again, addressing all of us guys here, if we men as leaders of our families are willing to lay down our own desires to provide for, to support, to encourage, and to protect our families, both materially, emotionally, and spiritually, then our families will in turn willingly follow us. You know, he was quite a character, but one of the greatest generals in all World War II. I love reading history, particularly World War II history, so let me share some of that with you. One of the greatest generals was George Patton. He he was a, a different kind of guy. If you've ever seen the movie Patton, you know what I'm talking about. But what made him unique was that unlike most other generals, he made a habit out of being up in the front lines with his soldiers, even during battle. In fact, it was a principle of his leadership that he would never ask his soldiers to do something that he wouldn't also do. And so, when the army assigned to him, the U.S. Third Army, was here in Southern California, training out in the desert, east of Palm Desert, really between Palm Desert and Blythe. In fact, there's a patent museum out there. You can go learn all about it. Very, very hot, arid area. they were training for their first Um, venture, which was into northern Africa, that's where they trained in the heat, when they were out there training in 1943, they used to run five miles a day in 110 degrees heat every day with a full battle pack on to train. But guess who was out there in his mid-50s running with them every day? was their general, George Patton himself. And so, a couple years later, when it came to saving the day in December of 1944 in the Battle of the Bulge, guess who was then able to be called upon, because they knew his, his guys would do it, to march his men through 100 miles of bitter cold snow in full battle gear as well, and to do it all in three days to make it up to our den in those areas to rescue the American troops that were under attack and make sure that the Allies won the battle? Well, of course, it was George Patton. No other general had men that would follow him like that. And his men, because of the way he led, would follow him anywhere. Now, you and I have an even greater leader. His name's Jesus. And our Lord Jesus called us to die to ourselves and to live and to love and to serve God and others. And yet, what did he do? He didn't just tell us to do that. He went out and did it himself. He told us to take up a cross and then he went and did exactly that, and died on a cross to love and obey God. And so that by doing that, he could purchase our salvation and bring us as forgiven and holy people to his Father. Now, the other thing to note out of these first two verses is that the men who then willingly offered to live in Jerusalem were told there were blessed by all the people, And you see, whether or not we're a church leader, a general, or the head of a household, God wants the submission and obedience of all of His children to be done willingly and because we want to, not because we feel like we somehow have to or have to do it under some sense of compulsion. That doesn't please Him. Now, we don't have time to study this in detail, but turn with me, if you would, over to the book of Romans in your New Testament, uh, chapter 12. And we're going to look just at verse 1. This is a verse you could literally do a whole sermon out of. I've done it before, but we're not going to do that this morning. I know you're the second crowd, so we may even go over a little bit, but I won't put you through that. We're just going to zero in on a couple things here. But this verse is a what we call a transitional verse because it's transitioning from 11 chapters, the first 11 chapters of Romans, which are all about the incredible doctrines of our faith. And now it's in the last five chapters, moving to the the practice of 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 our faith how do we how do we live that out uh, all the truth that the first 11 chapters show us cuz God wants us to be doers of his word not just just hearers only so these words kind of unite those two concepts and he says Romans 12:1 i appeal to you some translations say urge some say exhort some say encourage i appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of god and some translations say in view of the mercies of god to present your bodies, that's all, of, all that we are, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is far more than what we do before the message. That's a very important part of coming to God because it puts him in his proper place and puts us in our proper place, but that's not our only worship. Our worship is how we live our lives and living them as a living sacrifice. But I want you to go back to that second word there, appeal, urge, exhort, encourage why would god not command his people to do this you see it's because he wants our sacrifice for him our obedience to him to be done willingly because we want to he doesn't want it done out of some sense of compulsion or some feeling that we have to. And that same sense continues on in the word that's translated there as present in the Greek. That was, that was not an involuntary offering. That was a word for a voluntary offering where someone would willingly bring something up front and offer it because that's what God wants. He wants our service, our obedience, all that we do for him to be done willingly and because we want to. Now, speaking of General Patton, Uh, Janet and I visited Washington, D.C. in the late 80s before we had our first kids. And um, one day we spent a day at Arlington National Cemetery, which is a very moving experience if you've never done it. And then that night, I think it was more than a coincidence because the way we got blessed, our cab driver to dinner turned out to be a guy who was a survivor of the Battle of the Bulge. And so uh, with my interest in history, I was asking him all kinds of questions, and we got him talking uh, about it. And we got to listen to him describe what those three days were really like and what the battle was really like. And from listening to him, we got this sense that because Patton would go anywhere with his guys and was willing to endure all the same troubles, all the same battles that they faced, including death, that they would, in fact, follow him anywhere. We listened to a guy tell us this, you know, some 40 years later, and they did follow him everywhere, all over North Africa, chasing Rommel, and then all across Europe, um, fighting the Germans. Well, you and I, again, have an even greater leader in Jesus Christ, don't we? Because he has endured all the trials and temptations of this life that we face, yet he's done it without sin, and he came to die for us and did so on a cross and then was resurrected to new life. And so when we contemplate that, what he did for us, we ought to be able to lovingly and willingly follow him anywhere, as well, And before you leave Romans 12, 1, notice that it says, to do this by the mercies of God. And I mentioned some translations say, in view of the mercies of God, which to me is the better understanding of the Greek. Because he's saying, look, in response to all the incredible mercies of God, in loving response to that, now live your life as a willing, voluntary sacrifice. And you see, God so highly values it that when his, when his people lovingly and willingly, and because they want to follow him and obey him, that as we go back to Nehemiah chapter 11, we'll see there some pretty uplifting words that are used to describe those people who willingly went to live in the city. I don't have, we don't have time to read each verse, but maybe you can follow along. If you go back to Nehemiah 11, you'll see in verse 6 that he describes a certain group of them as 468 valiant men And that same concept continues in verses 7 and 8, where he describes another group of them as 928 men of valor. And then in verse 14, he describes another group of them as 128 mighty men of valor. The Hebrew word that's translated there in those verses as valiant or valor referred to someone of strength and character and substance and virtue and excellence. So that's quite a compliment. But it is what God wants to see in us. Now, the Bible is real clear that in and of ourselves, there is nothing good in us. If you don't believe me, read the first half of Romans 3. That's how it concludes. It says, there is none good, not even one. But if you are a child of God, as hopefully most of you here this morning are, the Bible says that there is someone else dwelling inside of us and that someone else is none other then God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit and he is full of valor and all those things that that word means of strength and character and substance and virtue and excellence. And so as we learn to die to self and then let the Holy Spirit live the life of Christ Jesus out through us, then we too can be like these men of valor and we'll begin to see amazing things for God happen through us. Now, the next thing to note in chapter 11 is the wide variety of people that are included in this group that willingly went to live inside the city. And again, if you just follow along with me as I call some of these out so we don't have to read each verse in the interest of time, you'll see in verse 12, there's some described there as workers of the house. Now, the house there referred to the temple. We'll see that in a couple verses. And so he's talking about workers inside the temple. In in other words, that would be referring to the priest. That was part of the group. And then in verses 15 to 16, we see some described there. It says, as those who did the outside work of the house of God. Those were the Levites. They didn't go into the inner workings of the temple, but they worked in the outer part of the temple. And then verse 17 says that some of those in this group were leaders of the praise and thanksgiving that was to go on there, leaders of the worship teams, were some of the the ones that went. And then verse 19 tells us that there were gatekeepers there, a very important job to guard, guard the city. Verse 22 says that there was an overseer there and also tells us that there were more singers there. But think about that, again, as we're looking at big pictures. What a beautiful representation that is of the unity that's possible amongst a very diverse group of people as long as they're all seeking to do God's work together and seeking to advance his kingdom. You see God has made his people everybody here all with different gifts, different callings, and different talents. But when all of God's people join together as one, united in a common purpose under him to advance his kingdom, great things can happen. And when I say advance his kingdom, I really mean two things. One is see more people come into his kingdom that acknowledge him as king. And then secondly, for those who are already in his kingdom, see them grow deeper in the ways they personally acknowledge him as king over more areas of his life. So the kingdom grows as people come in, and as people already in the kingdom are built up. And so it is in the greater body of Christ, the church, and in particular in this church. The Holy Spirit, we are told in God's word, Gifts to each one as he wills, and there are a variety of gifts. But when they are all exercised for the common good, as we see these people doing as they go back into the city, great things can happen to advance his kingdom. Not just 2,400 years ago in ancient Jerusalem, but right now here at CCPV. And I apologize for repeating myself because I've said this before, but I've been a Christian 37 years. And I've been blessed to be parts of all kinds of fascinating ministries. But I have never, ever, ever seen a movement of God like God is doing here in our midst. With people getting saved, with the Spirit moving, with people getting baptized, people getting discipled, people getting transformed, people being built up in Christ, and then going out and doing the same for others. It's an amazing experience. And so everyone here, every one of you here, gets to participate in that in one way or another and be part of what God is doing. What a tremendous blessing. I think there's time for an amen right there. Okay, all right. So here is something else to note um, out of what is described in chapter 11, another big picture lesson. In getting so many people from so many diverse backgrounds with so many different talents and gifts to unite as one to accomplish this great task of moving back into the city, we see that a wall of stones wasn't the only thing Being built, but that unity amongst God's people was also being built. You see, while the people were busy fitting all those physical stones together in order to build the wall, God was at the same time busy fitting the people together as living stones, as we are called in 1 Peter 2:5, in order to build up the nation of Israel then and the church today. But here's the thing that applies both to building the wall and to building unity amongst us. You know, when the wall was being built, they didn't have a bunch of uniformly shaped blocks or a bunch of uniformly shaped bricks that had all been baked in molds, delivered to them on a truck with a forklift from Home Depot with stacks of ready-mixed mortar, and all they had to do was add the water, mix it, and put the thing together. No, mortar wasn't even around back in those days. And so the way you made the wall work was this. The rocks came in all kinds of different shapes and sizes, and so those people building the wall in a mere 52 days had a lot to do before they could stack those rocks up. They would have to take chisels and other devices and knock parts of those rocks off and take things and sand them and grind them to get rid of the uneven edges so that the rocks would all fit together and hold together without mortar. And in the same manner, as the Holy Spirit moved amongst God's people back then to do that in our hearts and as he is doing in our midst right now as a new church, people had to be willing to let him knock off and grind down some of their rough edges. Ever felt God do that in your life? Okay, that's part of what he's doing as he builds unity so that we can all be one unified body and do the work of God. And you see, in doing that, there's a very important thing we have to remember. Personal preferences, I'm not talking about principles of God's truth, but personal preferences, like what color should the walls be or what kind of sugar do you want with your coffee or whatever else it may be, personal preferences have to be submitted to the preference of others so that the work of God, the important work, advancing the kingdom, is not hindered by any type of disagreement that would cause disunity. And then also, a person of God who's serious about this has to learn, just like John the Baptist did, to decrease at times so as to let others increase if that is what it takes to move the kingdom of God forward because that is our foremost mission. So the kingdom gets built, you see, in much the same way as this wall was built and as these diverse people were knit together as one to go take the city for God. So let's um, stay in Nehemiah and go to chapter 12 and... um, Again, like we did with chapter 11, I want to kind of set the stage for you here to get to understand what this might have been like, get you to relate to something here and now to get a glimpse maybe of what it was like to be there then and to participate in what we're going to read happens in this chapter. So let me ask this. I see Jeremy over there. We've got a few baseball fans here, right? Jeremy used to play baseball. So, and, and you're for which team, Jeremy? Dr. Hey, that's right. We're going to hear about them in a minute as well. So anyways, playoffs are almost over. Somewhat two teams are going to go to the World Series. Has anybody here ever been to a World Series? Anybody? Wow, I had a few hands the first time. There's some in the back. Great. I, I've been blessed uh, to go twice. Uh, once was in the 1980s when a team whose name shall not be mentioned, but they're from Southern California's uh, the last big city in Southern California, made it to the Series. And then once a couple of years ago when the team above all teams – from right here in Los Angeles, uh, made it to the series. And um, I've got to tell you, it's a really electrifying experience. There's absolutely nothing like it. I mean, no matter where you were seated, down in the field level where there's lots of concrete, or higher up where you're, you're on elevated concrete, you were literally on your feet the entire game, and you can feel the concrete floor underneath you shaking and vibrating all the time from people jumping up and down, just as you are. The cheering and, and, and the near constant clapping is so loud that it makes it almost impossible uh, to talk to the person next to you. And meanwhile, uh, the air is kind of like a mist filled with these combined smells of, of hot dogs and popcorn and beer. And what we have before us in this chapter dwarfs all of that by comparison. But I want us to try to put ourselves there and what is going on. And so. The opening part of the chapter describes some of the worship of God that was going on in this city. So let's glance at some of these verses, and then we're going to read uh, verses 27 to 47 at the end. But if you glance down at verse 8, you'll see that there were people there in charge of songs of thanksgiving. And if you glance at verse 24, you'll see that there were people who were there to give praise and to give thanks. And verse 25 tells us again about these gatekeepers who were there to keep guard. And then we get to verses 27 to 47, and I want to read those. And as we read it, just think about what it would have been like to be in that crowd. Put yourself in this crowd, this event far grander than any World Series um, could ever be. So, Nehemiah 12, starting in verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication, with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netaphethites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates as well. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and Ketches and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests' sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachar, son of Asaph, and his, his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilali, Maii, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra, the scribe, went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. That's just one choir. Now we get to the second one. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, the other side. And I followed them with half the people on the wall, above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshanah, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of Hundred to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard, so both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. And the priests Eliakim, Messiah, Minamin, Micaiah, Elioni, Zechariah, and Hanaya with trumpets, and Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehohan, Malchajah, Elam, and Ezar. And the singers sang with Jeremiah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy, and notice this, we're going to come back to it, the women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the town. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. See, they're giving offerings here with joy, which is how God wants us to offer our money, our time, anything to him. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel, And in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which is for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. So, the picture here is of these two great choirs, made up of all kinds of singers and musical instruments, surrounding the city on all sides, singing and making melody to the Lord, praising Him, purifying themselves. And giving thanks. So, this was a huge gathering. You know, archaeologists differ because there have been so many different levels and rebuildings of the wall. They differ on how long, in terms of circumference around the city, Nehemiah's wall actually was. But the difference is somewhere between two and a half miles and four and a half miles. And this wall was very, very wide. You could put six, eight people across on top of that. So, there could have easily been tens upon tens of thousands of people. Or at least the number of people in a stadium today to watch the World Series there on top of this wall. Only instead of gathering to watch a ball game, eat hot dogs, popcorn, and drink beer, these people were all joyfully praising God and doing so rather loudly. For do you notice there, verse 27 tells us they had symbols harps and lyres, and I'm not sure, Ben can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure lyres were like kind of an old world stringed instrument, kind of like a guitar today. There's hundreds of these things, thousands of them. And verse 35 tells us they had trumpets, and then of course there were the voices from this choir of thousands. Don't ever let anybody tell you that God doesn't like loud music, okay? (laughs) You see the same thing in Revelation as well. This is quite loud. And here's something that doesn't go on at ball games. They all purified themselves, which would have meant that externally there was a physical cleansing of some type going on, and internally they would have been forsaking sin. Now, the physical cleansing that normally would go on in Old Testament times usually consisted both of a washing with water out of basins with clean water in it, but also a sprinkling of blood, blood from sacrificed animals. And the internal cleansing would have been through prayers of confession— and prayers of repentance. So, what can we learn from all of this? What are some of the big picture lessons here? Well, first, let's consider how all of this fits into the big picture of what we've seen in the last several chapters of, of Nehemiah of what's been going on there. Because what we what we see there, excuse me, is that as Daniel taught us first in chapter eight, they had that grand reading of God's word with the people the the, the the pastor is basically going out and explaining the sense of the reading of God, meaning of God's word. And then as he taught us in chapter 9, because of that, the people were now led to a time of confession and a time of repentance. And you remember we learned that that went on for one quarter of the day. And day to a Hebrew then was the 12 hours of daylights. That would have meant for at least three hours of this entire population of people confessing and repenting. And then as Daniel taught us last week through chapter 10... We saw that after hearing the word, after confessing and after repenting, now in chapter 10, we see the people make a renewed commitment, a covenant as we saw, to obey God. And then now in chapter 11, after all that, in chapter 11, we saw the people actually start obeying God and moving into the city as he wanted them to do. And so we see this progression, the word of God leading to confession, repentance leading to a commitment to obedience, leading to actual obedience. And now in chapter 12, we see all of that leading to a time of great joy and a commitment to being pure and a time of great thanksgiving in this enormous choir and celebration. And you see, this isn't limited to 2,400 years ago. This is exactly how it works for us as Christians today. Let me take you to a part of the New Testament where we see this very clearly, And it's in the Gospel of John, uh, specifically verse 15, and we're going to start. We're going to read verses 10 and 11, John 15, 10 and 11. But let me set the stage for you. This is the great abiding passage where Jesus is talking to his disciples the night he's going to be arrested and go to the cross, telling them how to stay connected with him. That's what abide means, to dwell in, to stay connected to him once he's gone. And and, and part of it's through through prayer, part of it's through the Word of God. Uh, And he tells them that you need to do this because apart from me you can do nothing. And if you want there to be any fruit in your life, you have to abide in me. And then he sums it up in verse 10 with this statement. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. What's he talking about? Let's look first at verse 10. Because we see there that he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just in the same way as I kept my Father's commandments and abided in his love. Now, here's something this verse does not mean. It does not mean that when you and I are disobedient that God doesn't love us anymore. He loves us no matter what. But here's what it does mean. I'll, I'll give you some illustrations of how this works. It means that we don't sense his love. When we're disobedient, we don't sense his love that much. Everyone here has been a child at some point in their life, and many people here have children. And any parent and any child can tell you that a child is generally much happier, more joyful when what? When they're obeying their mom and dad. And so are the parents, frankly. Everybody's upset when there's disobedience going on. And so I remember when I was a kid, and growing up in the, in the second half of the 50s, when you could let your kids run around everywhere. My parents lived in a Claremont, a little suburb of San Diego, and it was a very small town then, uh, in an apartment building. And I remember my mom would let me go downstairs when I was like four or five to sit on the curb and wait for my dad to come home at the end of the day. And I would sit there and wait for him to get out of his car, and I'd run up and give my dad a big hug. And I would do that most every day, except for the days I'd been a really bad kid and often so bad that mom would have to call dad and I could hear her calling, what do we do with Rob? You know, he did this, he did that. Well, on those days, I was nowhere to be found near that curb, right? I was hiding in the closet, uh, in the bushes, under the bed. I mean, I didn't want anything to do with my dad. Well, what was going on? Had my dad stopped loving me? Of course not. Did I sense his love? No, because I had been disobedient. And so you see, that's what's going on here, you know. Another way to think of it, how many of you, um, I do see some of you closer to my age, you probably remember uh, TVs that had rabbit ears, right, before you had cable and those easy things to listen to. Anybody have a TV, remember TVs like that? Our first TV when Janet and I were married in 1978 was a 12-inch black and white, and the the rabbit ears were broken, and so we had to use a a, a bent uh, hanger to, to, you know, to try to get some signal. But you remember when you wanted to get your favorite show, you had to move those things around and get it just right so the TV waves would would light up your screen with the picture. Otherwise, it was just a bunch of gray and a bunch of lines. Well, the funny thing is the TV waves were still coming into the TV when it was all liney, but because your antenna wasn't aligned right, it didn't make a beautiful picture. It kind of made a mess. And that's the same thing here. God still loves us. His love is still being poured out on us. His grace is still being poured out on us. But when we're living in disobedience, we're like an out-of-tune, and I know nobody knows what that means anymore, but an out-of-tune TV set, and it's just a mess. It's just a bunch of gray, wavy lines. And so that's what Jesus is talking about here. But now look at what he says, because you might wonder, okay, why are you teaching us all this, Jesus? And he tells us why in verse 11. These things, abiding in me and obeying me, I have spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Whose joy does it say we get from living in obedience? Our own? Some earthly joy? No, he says my joy, the joy of Jesus Christ himself. And how much of that joy do we get? Just a little bit? What's it say? In full, we get all of it. Now, I want us all to understand just how powerful and amazing This joy of Jesus was that we can have from him in full as we seek to obey him. And to see that, let's go to Hebrews 12, verse 2. Hebrews 12, verse 2 um, tells us about that joy and what it enabled him to do. Hebrews 12, 2 says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, now catch this, who for the joy of that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, for the joy of knowing that he was obeying the will of the Father to carry out the plan made in eternity past to come and die for our sins and be resurrected, for the joy of knowing that he was obeying his Father, Jesus was able to endure something as awful and nasty as the cross. Don't you want that kind of joy? Well, see, it comes from this heart that seeks to obey Him. It can be ours as we seek to abide in Him, serve Him, and obey Him. And brothers and sisters, this is a supernatural joy. It's not like any human joy because it enables people to endure terrible circumstances here on earth, just like Jesus had to. It's a joy that isn't even dependent or related to circumstances. Rather, it rises and floats above our circumstances, because it is this supernatural joy that God gives us from having a heart that seeks to obey Him. Now, the other thing we see in the big picture, back to Nehemiah 12, get our minds back to that, is there's this desire to be pure uh, all the way through there, because it talks about purification over and over again. Now, you and I as believers already have a purity, positionally speaking. That means God sees us as pure and, and holy because we have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and so he now sees us in the purity of his Son. But once we have that, a joyful Christian, one who's seeking to obey, is also going to be a grateful Christian who is actually going to then want to take practical steps to actually live a more pure or a more holy life. In other words, a life like Jesus. A life that's not driven by the passions of our flesh, like anger, lust, greed, pride, envy, or fear, but instead is driven by the promptings of the Holy Spirit and is in accordance with God's Word. In fact, if we say we're a Christian, but we don't have that desire in us, then something is radically wrong with our lives, Because, see, God's saving grace, when it's poured out on a man or woman's heart, also comes with a transforming grace and a desire to live differently. He doesn't separate the two. And I want us to see, uh, since you're in Hebrews 12, a verse that drives this point home. Glance down to Hebrews 12, verse 14. It says something pretty profound here. We're going to be looking at the second half of it, but let me read the whole thing. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone, and meaning also strive for this, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He's not saying there that you and I have to work to make ourselves holy in order to go see God. No, that's been granted to us by Christ. But what he is saying, because this is being written to Christians, if you are a believer, you better have this desire in you to strive for holiness. Because if you don't, you aren't on your way to see God. You've got to go back and do business with God. Because, again, saving grace always comes with this transforming, sanctifying grace, this desire to be different. Now, thank goodness, as Spurgeon pointed out, all it says here is we have to strive for that. <laughs> doesn't mean you have to obtain it because we can't. We can't obtain perfection on our own. That's the point of the gospel, right, is to realize we're all Wretched sinners at the foot of the cross, we all need a Savior. But once having received that, now there ought to be a desire to start being more like that Savior and pursue holiness. So, um, that's purity. The other thing we saw in here from this group is thankfulness all over the place. Songs of thanksgiving, songs of thanksgiving. And that, thanksgiving, is such an essential part of Christian character that Romans 121 Uh, In the second half of Romans, it describes the downward spiral spiritually of a a nation or a person into just more and more debauched sin. But Romans 121, where it all kind of starts, says that one of the first steps in that downward spiral of sin and of walking away from God is the simple thing, the failure to give him thanks, the failure to give him thanks. So that should always be part of our hearts as Christians, a heart of thanksgiving. So now, all three of these things that we just covered in chapter 12, joy purity, thanksgiving, you see, are as important for the protection of our own hearts as the wall was for the protection of the city. And these are the types of things, just as we've also seen in these last few chapters of Nehemiah, that will come out of us when we've been in God's Word, chapter 8, and we've confessed and repented, chapter 9, we've renewed our commitment to obey, chapter 10, we've taken steps of obedience, chapter 11, and now you'll begin to see this joy, this desire for greater purity and thanksgiving. There's one place in the New Testament where we see something pretty similar um, that comes out of a Christian. And turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians 5, uh, verse 18. I won't spend a lot of time here, but um, uh, Ephesians 5, 18 is this call to continuously be filled with the Holy Spirit and, and to not let, it mentions drunkenness here, but any sin cause that there to be a dissipation of that Spirit in us. So let me read it starting in 18. but uh, We're going to focus on verses 19 to 21. Ephesians 5.18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Other translations say dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. And the Greek there is a continuous sense. You've got to constantly keep staying filled. But now look at what ushers out of a Spirit-filled Christian. Verse 19, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Look, he's not talking about all of us having to sing with the quality of the band up here. He's not even talking about us all necessarily singing, because what he says is, melody to the Lord with your heart. He's talking about joyfulness. That's the first thing, just like we saw in Nehemiah, the first thing that should come out of a spirit-filled Christian. And look at the second one, verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the thanksgiving. And then thirdly, he talks about something that's really related back to obedience and and to dying to self. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the submission of our own personal preferences for the preferences of others. This willingness to decrease so that others might increase um, that we talked about. So, um, there's a couple other things to note back in Nehemiah 12 before we close. So, let's go back there. You all doing okay? I've got time to finish this up. Okay, so let's go to Nehemiah 12, and we are going to zero in on two things that are in verse 43. So let's read that again, verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. And here's the first thing I want you to notice. The women and children also rejoiced. We'll talk about that. And the second thing, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard Far away, so the first thing we see there is that with all of the men that have been listed previously in this chapter, all the valiant men, the men of valor, expressing all this great joy, that the women, their women and their children, also rejoice. So this tells us that entire families were rejoicing together. And so I'll address the guys here in the room again: if we will be joyful leaders in our own homes, guess who's going to join in with us? Our wives and our children. Conversely, if there's no joy in our home, and maybe you know, maybe it's not the fault of the wife and the kids. Maybe it's because the joy of the Lord, this same joy we're seeing here, is not in us because we're not seeking to obey, and so we haven't been given this joy of the Lord that we saw in John 15:11. And then, second, for everyone here of both sexes and all ages, notice that the end of verse 43 says that this joy was heard far away. What's that telling us? It's telling us about the witness to all the lands around them that was going on because of the joy being expressed by these people who were so in love with their God. You see, the Christian life was meant to be a joyful life. Ben Kai and I were talking about this at the break as we preached together here for years at Life in the Hill. And we were very convinced as we preached through a lot of the Old Testament that um, our Jewish predecessors in this faith seemed to get joy a lot better than we did. I mean, they had a joy because they were the chosen people, and yet so many Christians go around looking dour and sad face and like Eeyore, you know, that, that everything's, you know, everything's going kind of wrong. And that's not how it's supposed to be because what we see here is our joy is one of our primary witnessing tools that God uses to the world around us of the reality of God and of how good He is. And if we're not joyful people, if we don't have this supernatural joy of Jesus in us that we've been reading about, it's only going to seriously hurt our witness and our ability to reach the world for Christ. Most of you probably know where the fruit of the Spirit is in the New Testament, right? Galatians five twenty two to twenty three, and we're not going to study it. I'm just going to refer to it. But it lists the fruit of the Spirit there, and joy we see is part of the fruit of the Spirit that, he, that the Spirit produces in us, and. I want you to think about the order of that verse because Jesus endorses every part of God's Word down to the jot and tittle. That means every punctuation point is inspired and without error, just the way God wants it. So is then the order of the words. And remember it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and then peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Well, think about the order there. Why would joy come after love. Because I believe that's no accident. Because if we do not truly understand what it means that we as wretched sinners are loved by this holy, awesome God who has every right to judge us and condemn us and punish us forever for our sin, but has instead showered us with the wonder and miracle of his grace, then there will be no reason for any joy in us. One of my favorite Christian writers from a long time ago, about 300 years ago, was a man named Blaise Pascal, and uh, a Frenchman, I believe. And he was a Christian theologian and author and um, philosopher, really. And in one of his books, he writes about these two things. That he calls them seemingly polar extremes, because to us they seem completely opposite, that are all through Scripture and that God wants us to embrace at the same time all the time, and yet we fail to do it. One of them, he says... On this side, we might call the gravity and depravity and wretchedness of our own sin. Okay? On the other side, though, the other... you know, kind of pillar that he encourages us to endorse all through Scripture is the miracle and the wonder of this amazing grace that God has showered on us. And he says that the Christian life is best lived grabbing onto both of those all the time and that it's in the tension of those two that we have the joy of the Christian walk and we have the power and the excitement to move forward. And he points out, sadly, which I think where a lot of Christians are, that many Christians stay in this narrow little comfort zone in the middle. I'm never going to look at the wretchedness and depravity of my sin anymore. I did that when I got saved. And so consequently, we don't really appreciate the way we should, the miracle and the wonder of God's grace. And yet think of David in his great psalm of repentance in Psalm 51. He embraced both. He says, my sin is ever before me. And he knows he's forgiven. And that God will restore to him the joy of his salvation. And so I would encourage us, brothers and sisters, to think about that. Never lose sight of both of those. Grab on to both of them. And that will produce this amazing joy in us. Now, as we close, it would be good to point out that while when I was reading all those names, I probably butchered some of the names in there uh, in this great choir praising God. But... Despite the way I pronounce them, God knows every one of their names, and he knows how to pronounce them correctly. And not only that, but this is important, he knows them intimately. For our God is a personal, relational God. We see that in the Trinity. There's a love bond Jesus speaks of in John 17 between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that's unlike anything we can imagine. So God is relational in his very being. He created us to be relational beings in relationship with him and with each other, and so he knows us intimately. He not only created every person listed there in Nehemiah 12 and caused each of them to be fearfully and wonderfully made in their mother's womb, as Psalm 139 says, but Psalm 56.8 tells us, one of my favorite verses when I'm struggling or I'm trying to share with someone else who is, Psalm 56.8 tells us that God knows every tear we ever shed, So every person in that list, he not only created them, he knew every tear they ever shed. In fact, that psalm says he counts them, and he he stores our tears in a bottle. Matthew 10.30 tells us that God knows how many hairs are on our head, and I got permission from Benkai to pick on him again, but that's an easy miracle to understand if you're Benkai because he doesn't have much up here, or maybe Jeremy I could throw you in the boat too. Me too, I'm getting there. That's an easy miracle to understand for guys like that. But some of you out here with full, vibrant heads of hair, that's amazing. Wow, how can God number every hair on my head? But the point is, he knows you that intimately. And this same God knows each and every one of us in this room in the same intimate way. And he wants us to grow in an intimate knowledge of him. Um, because it's through this work of Jesus on the cross you see that the barrier of sin which prevented that intimacy has been done away with. And so, as we say here, you and I can very easily bring the real you, the real me, to the real Jesus. Because guess what? He already knows everything about you. And yet, Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, there's nothing to hide. We can bring the real us to the real him. Now, One other thing, this great choir circled around the city of Jerusalem ought to remind us of somewhere else in Scripture where we see a great choir, even bigger than this one, so big that a human can't number it, circled around something. And that is found in Revelation chapter 7, uh, verses 9 to 12. So let's um, go there and read this little section and hopefully be amazed by what we see. Revelation 7, 9 to 12, this is part of John's vision of what's going on in heaven starting in verse 9, Revelation 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. But you know what God numbers. He knows exactly who they are, but we can't. No one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, there's our purity, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, that God wants there to be a huge crowd, much bigger than what surrounded Jerusalem, there in heaven for all eternity, worshiping his son. And he wants the real you and the real me, not only now, but for all eternity in this place. And if you were here this morning and came in here to worship Jesus, and you know him as your Lord and Savior, you're going to be there. The Bible assures you of that. But there might be some people here this morning and maybe some people online listening today who might have heard all of this. And you might be wondering, who is this Jesus? How how can I know him? How can I have this great joy that we've been talking about? Well, we go back to the big picture of Nehemiah. It's as simple as what we saw those people do there. It starts with hearing God's word as they did in chapter 8, and you've heard it this morning. It then moves to Oh, and by the way, let me say, if you are hearing his word, (laughs) if you've never done this before and you're hearing God speak to you, that means he is calling you to be one of his sheep because he said, Jesus said in John 10, that my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So if you're hearing him speak to you, he's calling you. Pay attention to this. And then as you've heard the word and hear him calling, you realize that you were a sinner in the face of this holy God. It moves you to repentance like the people did in chapter um, 9 of Nehemiah, and then just as the people did in chapter 10 of Nehemiah, you need to commit yourself to God through Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Trust in Jesus to purify you, to give you these white robes that we've seen here and make you acceptable in God's sight, and he will do that. And in case you haven't noticed, thankfully we don't sacrifice animals anymore. Uh, because we don't need blood to sprinkle on people to purify them, because Jesus already purified you by the shedding of his blood on a cross. And all you need to do to receive that purification from sin that he offers, which is what we call salvation, is just receive it. Say, Jesus, I trust in you. I receive what you did for me. I believe that you died on a cross and rose from the dead. And I ask you to come into my life. And he will save you, and he will do that. And then you too can rejoice with great joy, not only now, but all the way into eternity around this throne of God that we've seen in Revelation 7. And you can know without a doubt that you've been forgiven by the blood of the Lamb and that he sees you just as he saw those people there dressed in white robes. Now for everyone else here who already knows Jesus as your Lord and Savior, maybe as you've been hearing God's word today, the Holy Spirit has been taking it and using it to convict you or to prompt you in some way, because I know he does that. The Bible tells us that's his job. That's not my job or Daniel's or Benkai's job. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to do the convicting. And maybe he's telling you you've lost some of your joy of your salvation. Maybe it's missing from your home. Maybe you haven't been seeking after purity in some area of your life the way you know God wants you to. Or maybe you've sensed, a loss of that thanksgiving that we've seen here uh, in your heart. Well, repentance, you see, is not just for new believers when they come to Christ. Repentance, that making that U-turn, that change of direction, is for all of us. All of us need to repent from time to time and ask God to change our heart. And it's been my experience as an elder and a pastor for a number of years. There are, I picked this up from just counseling with people, that there are far too many Christians who have had only a one-time experience at the cross, and that was the day they got saved. And I'm not calling us to do anything that would look uh, Roman Catholic, like re-crucifying Jesus at every church service. There's no need to do for that. He already died once for all. But there is a need for all of us, brothers and sisters, to go back to the cross again and again and again, not to get resaved, but rather to do what Pascal talked about, to appreciate anew, all that the grace of God in Christ means and how it has been poured out on us and then let it change us and let us bring us joy and give us a desire to be pure and give us a thankful heart. Remember that if you're a believer, according to Hebrews 4.16, when we come to God's throne, it's not a throne of judgment anymore. It's a throne of grace. It's a place that says "Or we can come to find mercy and help in our time of need. And when, brothers and sisters, do we never need mercy and grace from Jesus Christ? So we can come to him that way this morning. Now, we have off on the side of the church here, these areas with four or five chairs towards the back on either side. We came up with a name for them this week, calling them the Prayer Wings, because it's a place you can go to, and our prayer team will be there if you guys want to start moving over there if you're part of it. And you can just let your requests be made known to them, and they will lift you up on wings of prayer to this amazing God who pours out grace. So let me pray, and then the band will come back up. Father God, thank you for, uh, again, as we started, for your word. Thank you for its amazing truth. Holy Spirit, thank you for being present in this place, Lord. We pray you would be working in all of our hearts now, including mine, Lord, to help us uh, come to a place of repentance if we need to for some area in our life that you want to have changed. We pray, Lord, that your spirit um, would give us this supernatural joy that we've looked at this morning. We pray that um, the joy in our lives would be used by you as a witness to others. Thank you for the opportunity to gather. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you. And we look forward now, Lord, to just singing praises to you one more time before we leave this place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.